Good morning. So, as you will recall, we've been discussing now, this is a, the third week of the Ramam, and, and the last week we'll be focusing on the Ramam. What we've been talking about is in relation to secular studies, that there were a number of people that felt that you can't bring a riot from the Rambam and his clear preoccupation with secular studies. Just to run through it again, the reasons were either the Rambam is super special, he's sui generis, there's nothing like the Rambam. None of us could possibly imagine what he was like, but he bring riots from somebody like that. Number one. Number two, the Rambam is a riot, but only for people in Kirov. He's only arrived for people that are engaged in the situation where they're dealing with an influx of ideas that are coming from the outside world that are threatening the Jewish people. So therefore, in order to be able to deal with Nebuchadnezzar, a crisis of assimilation, a crisis of people leaving the faith, so you have to engage in those kinds of studies. So for somebody in the milieu, in a cultural milieu like the Rambam was, then okay, you have to go out and study this stuff. But otherwise, for regular people, if you're living in the cocoon of the shtetl, who needs any of it? That's the second. And then the third reason that we saw that the Rambam wasn't a raya was much more Serbic reason, which is, is the Rambam really such a success? The success that we see in the Rambam, look at this ability to go through all the secular wisdom and at the same time be the predominant expert in Kala Really? Right. This was the criticism that was leveled by many, including from the Maskilim, who said that, look at the Rambam, he imbibed so much in the secular wisdom that the things that he actually put together, and he said, were so heavily infused and infested with the Greeks, that that's not something that's a riot to us. That's not something that's a good thing. That's something that was in his time that was popular, and that's what he thought was true, but it was totally wrong. We know all that today, all the Greek science, all that wrong. So therefore, he's not a raya. And precisely the opposite. We shouldn't be doing the same thing. We shouldn't be following that path. Because guess what? If we're going to go and engage in all the science of our day, in another 50 years from now, we might find out that all of it is bunk as well. And so instead of relying so much on the secular wisdom that is all Quran of that time, which is not necessarily going to hold its test of time, rely on the Torah instead. Those are the three reasons why the Ram is not such a raya. But we said... But clearly, from the Rambam's perspective himself, he didn't hold with any of these three reasons. In fact, we can show, and we have been showing, that the Rambam felt that his secular wisdom was a lechatchila, that it was a requirement, that it was a prerequisite to getting into heaven, to being close to God. And we'll show today how it is a requirement for the most basic, elementary, and of course, most profound mitzvahs in the Torah itself. So to start out, Today I'm going to focus most on the mission of Torah, but I was going to start out with the another one more Rambam in the Maranavukim. Remember, there's no question. If anybody ever says, "Oh, the Rambam, he wasn't such into secular wisdom," you don't really, you don't really know, you don't really see. It is only a statement that can be made by absolute amaratus. Hundred percent, the Rambam is into secular wisdom. And there's no, there's no, it's not like a doubt about it. Like there are those that said after the Rambam passed away that he was a closet Kabbalist. That really the entire Marna book was all based upon Kabbalah. And if you really knew how to read it, he was a Kabbalist. 
Okay. That's not me saying it. Those are like Rishenim saying it. Whether or not they were right or wrong is not for right now. But for anybody to come and say the Rambam was really, you know, holding only in Tyra, this secular wisdom was not really anything. It, it's absolutely not even a question that it can't even be uttered with any seriousness. The, literally hundreds of times they quote the Greeks in the Maranavukim alone puts that to rest. But it's not just that. In the Mishnah Tyra itself, he is, of course, dealing with Tyra, and yet he's repeatedly basing himself upon secular wisdom and secular studies. And we'll show that today as well. In the Maranavukim, remember the Raman quotes that Aristotle is what? The greatest possible human being that anyone, right? Sorry, I should restate that. He doesn't say that in the He says that in a letter, which of course are those who say it's a forgery. But in he quotes Aristotle a hundred times in the Maranavukim. And in a letter that he's writing, he writes that Aristotle is the greatest human being that anyone can possibly ever reach without prophecy. The greatest. Unlike the Ramban who, or the... Uh, or the um, the Amshel Schleimer, right? We saw he called him Aristotle Ha'arol. Other than others who who denigrated him, the Ramam is full of praise. Right? And and even if you say the Mari doesn't actually quote Aristotle as a uh, the greatest possible of all time, but the fact that he quotes him a hundred times, using him as a base for many of his principles, right, including the most famous perhaps principle of the Ramam, which is that all physical touch, the chush hamishosh is genai hubiyeris, which he repeats five times in the Mona Vukim, that's all from Aristotle. Right? That the sense of touch is the most embarrassing aspect of humanity. The fact that we are material, the fact that we are temporal, the fact that we are tactile, this is really a shud. It would be ideal if we could all be minds only, if we could just be mental giants. The fact that we never have bodies, okay, this is how Hashem made us, so we have to deal. But it's not ideal. Again, whether or not we agree, it's not important, but this idea is from Aristotle. And this is an idea that's all the way through the entirety of the Marnabu. So where I want to start today is from one more Mara, which is the following. The Raman gives a marshal. Now you have to remember that like Nachman, all the muscles have kings, but they're not necessarily the most exciting Mishalim, right? We don't look at the Ramos Mishalim and expect to be reading, you know, a tale of... Uh, you know, 1,001 Arabian Nights. This is not that kind of a marshal. The marshal is a very simple marshal. The king, and the king has a lot of people who want to go meet him. And on the way to meet him, there are people who are far plunged on the, on the road, on the highways. And then there are some people who actually get to the, get to the, uh, you know, the palatial estate where the, where the palace is. And there are those that are, you know, lost and trying to figure out all the myriad gardens. He has a different kind of a God. He believes in an eternal universe. He does not believe in a created universe. Well, the God of the universe for him is not somebody that is separable from the universe itself. Um, of course, probably everybody here remembers growing up, the fact that Aristotle was a hilarious that he would eat Avram and Achai. You know, I remember hearing that as a kid. I never saw it by the Greeks that he, he you know, partook of that, but I remember hearing it that Aristotle would eat a rabbit alive, you know, to show the difference between Torah and secular wisdom. Don't know where that comes from. Um, in any event, 
what I wanted to say here in this mushal is that the, this is the Rambam bringing down this king who has all these followers, these subjects who want to meet him. And some of them are stuck way out yonder. Some of them are in the state, but there's so many gardens. You know, in England, if you go today in England, you want to waste time. You can go see manicured gardens. Like, you know, you manicure your fingernails. They have manicured gardens. They literally have gardeners who spend hours. This is it. Just manicuring lawns. They make lawns into mazes, lawns into that. And they, it's not like a new thing, by the way. Like, they, like some people are so bored, they have nothing to do. So they came up with it today. It's been going on for hundreds of years. Some of these gardens are literally hundreds of years old. And they're like, not much renown, right? Unbelievable. So they're getting lost. There's so many beautiful gardens, where to go see, what to do. There's only very few people manage to get into the palace. Then within the palace, you can imagine, what do you have when you get into one of these big palaces? Tons of rooms. It's easy to get lost. It's a maze. It's a web. Very hard to actually find the, the, the throne room where the king is sitting. Only very few people manage to get to the throne room. And when you get to the throne room, of course, it's incredibly terrifying to actually get to be in front of the king. Only very, 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 very unique souls manage to get that far. So what's the nimshal? We all imagine it. But here is where I wanted to bring it in. So you hear this point. This is a very, very controversial Rambam. The Rambam says the following. Those who are turned to the to the to the yard by the king to get in. They don't actually see the chatzar hamela. They're trying to get to it. They're on the road, but they, they still haven't gone to the courtyard of the palace yet. These are the masses of people who are observant of the Torah. They're keeping the commandments. They keep the they keep the Torah. That is the majority of people who keep Torah who don't know anything. They are not even in the palace. They're not even in the Chatzar Melech. They are painim. They're trying to find the courtyard of the king. But those who actually have reached the Chatzar Melech, those who have actually reached the courtyard. These are the, the wise ones, is the chachamim that understand the various truths because of tradition. But what haven't they done? They know what they know on the basis of tradition. They're not just blindly observing the commandments. They also have traditions that are deeper, more supernal things that they accept. But they haven't what? They haven't spent time thinking. They haven't spent time contemplating. They haven't spent time meditating on the truth, on the essence of this universe and why we're all here. Those people, they at least made it to the courtyard. They at least are in the Chatzar Mela. But you want to know who's going to actually make it all the way in? Those are These are the people who actually have been spending time thinking about the nature of this underpinning of the foundations of, of this world of Judaism. They're actually getting into the, into the inner uh, courtyards, into the antechambers. 
And of course, there you also have different levels of people. And then he goes on to say that in terms of your knowledge of the sciences and the mathematics of the world, it's the same thing. If you only know very basic stuff, you know, one plus one equals two is very nice, but you're like way out there. But when you get to know physics and metaphysics, that's when you're in. So why is this Raman very controversial? Because he's saying that you could be an observant Jew, you could be very knowledgeable in your Judaism, but if you haven't spent time thinking about the underpinnings of the world and how it all works, you're not there. You're not like my blood's way out there, but you, you, you got to the chatzer. Remember, there's still a palace. There's still a lot of rooms and you haven't made it there. And of course, the same applies in secular wisdom. If your basic knowledge of secular wisdom is that when you have a headache, you take Tylenol. Again, there's not a very deep understanding of the world outside. So now let's turn to the Mishnah Torah. I want to run through a, a few examples. The Ramah starts out the Mishnah Torah by saying, the, the foundation of all foundations. What is the Chachmas that we're talking about? Chachmas is plural here. Right? We're not talking here about Torah alone. We're talking about all wisdoms, the underpinning of all wisdoms, the foundation of all foundations. We're not only talking about Torah. Is that there is one first cause. There is one prime mover. And who is that? That's underpinning all wisdoms, not just Torah. That's what you have to know. That's all coming from a Kaddish prophet. And then he continues. And he says that to know this, this is what it means when we say every day, right? The, the various Askars, that HaKadosh Baruch was the one who created the world. This is the mitzvah, the mitzvah to medias. We can always be kind this mitzvah of recognizing that there is one Eveshtah. He underlies everything. There is nothing that somehow is outside of his purview, that's outside of his power. Everything, the entirety of the universe is all due to him. He is the first cause. The moment you realize that he's the first cause of everything that is associated in the universe that you're aware of, you're yet to that mitzvah. You're yet to the mitzvah. And then he continues. And he says the following. He says that this, this unbelievable power that we cannot imagine any hasagas of what he is, but he controls everything. And remember, the Rambam is, this is one of the criticisms of the Rambam, right? That he's so mushka on the Greeks. So his whole conception of the world is a Ptolemaic universe, right? Which exists with spheres. They had nine different spheres, right? We have the, the, the various constellations that we could see. That's one sphere, that another sphere. And all of these different spheres is how the universe worked. We know today, of course, we have no, there's no real truth in any of the spheres whatsoever, but the idea is the same, which is the notion that the earth is moving, right? Or a geocentric universe for those that are more comfortable with that. But either way, the fact that there is a clear 100% rhythm in the universe at large, that is done without effort. We know today, oh, there's gravitational pull. Yeah, all of that, sure. 
all of the Goldilocks zone, all of the intelligent design, all of the genius in the microcosm and in the macrocosm, all of it comes from him, no question. The moment you think about it, the moment you recognize that, the moment you understand that, you are Bimekayim, you have appreciated that he is the one who is the prime mover of everything in the universe. And then it continues. And here, I think, is absolutely something that doesn't get taught enough in yeshivas, but it's, for the Ramam, it's the underpinning. Remember, Hilchas Tamatera is not the first part of Mishnah Torah. What's the first part of Mishnah Torah? Before you get to Tamatera, you first have to do Yisraeliyat Torah. Before you build a building, you have to have a foundation. The foundation is Hilchas Yisraeliyat Torah. And others to say that the Ramah spends four chapters, the first four chapters dealing with Maisa Markov and Maisa Bracious. And then he deals with Nevua, Kiddush Hashem, and the life. And only after he's finished with the Sayyidiyat Torah does he get to Talmud Torah. So, in the order of priorities, of course, Talmud Torah is very important. But you first have to have the Sayyidiyat Torah. What's the Sayyidiyat Torah? Not Torah. And here, listen to this Ramah. He says the following, and this is in Parak Bays, right at the beginning of Parak Bays. He says, We have a mitzvah to love Hashem. It's not enough just to be maimon in Hashem. It's not enough to just say, It's not enough to just realize that he's the one cause of everything in the universe. And therefore, That's not enough. You need also what? You need also to have love for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You need also to fear him. How do you do that? What's the path? How do you come to love God? How do you come to fear him? The Ram is going to tell you, how do you come to love Hashem? Where do you get it from? How does a person come to feel tremendous love? Says the Ram, this is how you do it. Bishor she is binding her Adam and myself. When a person contemplates his works, his great works in this universe, when you recognize the wisdom, and I say the macro and the micro, right? If you take a, 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 a biologist, right? He takes his telescope and he opens up a little cell and all of a sudden in the cell, what do you have? Today we know we have in the cell, right? There's all these little tiny things, electrons, Right, and neutrons and micro mitochondria DNA, like crazy amount, tiny, tiny thing, all in the tiniest little cell. One tiny little cell, you can spend a whole lifetime in studying, and you're still learning and learning more. How does that work on, on, on the level of wisdom? You're not blown away. You're not blown away by seeing the sheer genius in, in the littlest, tiniest, most nothing. And then, of course, you, you take your telescope and you look up at the outside and you're like, this, we're talking about one galaxy here in our, little, in, our, in our little tiniest swath of this universe, one little tiny galaxy, relatively speaking, it's not, uh, not like 100 light years, not a thousand, tens and thousands of light years. We have one little tiny star in an enormous galaxy. And this is one galaxy. Of, we go crazy. Just thinking about the numbers are just so insane. And he is mom to all of it. With a kayach that's in la erech like kate, there's no, there's no effort. It's all effortless. All of it is known. All of it is checked out at the same moment. No, with no effort. 
that doesn't blow you away at the genius. It doesn't make you so enamored and obsessed to get to know what kind of a power is in this universe. You're not interested to know. You don't want to know more. You don't want to get closer. This says the Rambam, you're just desperate to know. And this has become a song. But you just desperately, you're thirsty, you want to know Hashem. Because the more and more you look at the universe, the more and more you recognize the genius, the more and more you want to know. And this desire to know, this innate desire to know is what you get when you open up a book of science, when you open up a book of mathematics and you see how, how ingenious every aspect of the universe is. This is how you come to know, this is how you come to love Hashem. This is the being the kind, the mitzvah of loving Hashem. You have to love Him. You have to Hashem like Hashem. What about fearing Hashem? So he says the same thing. He says the moment that you come to love Him is also the moment you come to fear Him. He says that you recognize the moment that you start appreciating the, the absolute unbelievable genius that underlies every fiber and aspect of the universe is the moment you're like, oh my God, I'm so puny. I'm so tiny. For me, we go with my father, we go fishing. Sometimes we go fishing offshore, deep offshore to go for, let's say, tuna fish. Things very far away, 100 miles in the ocean. You know what happens at night? And by day, there's like nothing there. There's literally nothing there. The sky is open, and you see hundreds, thousands of stars. Whatever's available to the naked eye. It's unbelievable. And then you remember, like you're on this enormous ocean, and you're on this little tiny boat. The ocean is so vast. Wow. You're tiny. You're mamish or nothing. And yet, your conception, you're aware, you're conscious of your own nothingness, your own puniness. Being more and more aware of this puniness, how you come to fear him, because you recognize what a distance there is between that power that is so enormously awesome and so beyond anything within our comprehension. In other words, this earth is so tiny, relatively speaking, a speck of dust in the span of the universe. Literally, if you would take it, relatively speaking, this, this earth relative to the universe is like not even a flick of dust that we would see flying through the, through, if you would take a light and watch dust flicking. That's how small it is. And, and, and it's almost impossible. It'll boggle the mind. It breaks your head to think about that. So you take it in a way that you can possibly realize it. Like most things in our life, we take things that are available in our day-to-day -to, -day to be able to have a parallel of what it means to cut us bark a little bit. Like we, we, we raise our children, right? What is that? It's supposed to be in an infinitesimal in a small way what it's like to be a monogamy universe. We appreciate what it means for our cutters broker to run a world if we have to run our family. So you're seeing on the ocean, which itself is relatively tiny speaking compared to the universe, it's true. But relative to us, it's enormous. And you feel how puny you are. You feel how tiny you are. And in that way, you can become the kind of mitzvah of Hashem like So why am I bringing up this Ramam? Because the Ramam is saying that the fundamental way to come to love Hashem and to come to fear Hashem is how? By becoming aware of the universe. By becoming aware of what's outside you. 
Now you can become aware of the universe by conducting experiments, or if you don't have time because you actually have a job and you have to support your family, you don't have time to get to know the whole universe, even though it's a really nice thing. So you have a book, you can read you know, these short books about the world, and it's unbelievable. The variety, the diversity, all different. Imagine you take, you know, you, you want to study flies in this tent. How many different bugs I've seen in this tent over the last six? It's like every different type of bug. I never knew such bugs existed. I, I didn't know what they do, but every one of them has a purpose. Every one of them is doing something. And every one of them cares of their survival. If I'm about to kill, he's trying to run away. Each and every one of them has a purpose and a place. It's mind-boggling. So every little aspect of life, you can go outside and you can go figure out a way to be able to get closer to the Kodesh And Literally, in this way is the right. The Rambam says that you can be kind of the mitzvah of Ava and Yerav Hashem. He doesn't talk here one word about what? Learning, Gemara. Not because that's not a way, but because you want to know how you're going to get to a place of the deepest appreciation to have desire to know Hashem in a way is to look at every one of his creatures and creation and realize the genius that is infused in every aspect of their creation. Now the Ramam says at the end of these four chapters, he says a very, another very famous and somewhat controversial Ramam. The Ramam says that these four chapters that he's been talking about, which is what we didn't get into today, but it's his cosmology that he was aware of in his day. It's his physics, it's his metaphysics of how he thought the world worked. None of it is true. All of it is Aristotelian. All of it has been banished to the dustbin of history in terms of the modern science. But it's not important. It's not important the fact that his science was not as right as the science is today. It's not necessary. The point is that it was the science that made him appreciate Akkadosh Baruch and in the same way for us, it is the science and it's the mathematics, it's the genius that can help us appreciate, not approximate. We'll never get an infinitesimal understanding, Misha, of, of, of what a Kaddish Baruch is. We won't. But what we will be able to appreciate in a tiny way is some measure of his genius. And that way, we could be Nisava, we could have a desire. Because the goal of what we're trying to get to is having a desire to know Akkadosh Baruch to feel Tzamalachanavshi, to want to become close to him, to desire to thirst for it. But that was the meaning, by the way, in the tense name. It wasn't the, uh, the meaning about anything else, just that point. So anyhow, the, um, the, uh, the Rambam continues at the end of Paragdalit, and he says that all of these things I've been talking about, this is what I would say is pardis. And you all know what pardis is because the Gemara Chagiga talks about it, right? That the four went to pardis, right? Ben Zayma, Ben Azai, Acher, and Rabbi Akiva. Three of them didn't come out okay, right? Only one of them did. Rabbi Akiva came out okay. You know, the Gemara says about, the Rambam actually uses it in that Marina Vukum that I mentioned before, the, that he says most of the people they're outside, they're in the chutzers, they're in the they're, they're they're way out to actually get into the palace and then to get through all the praise dorm to get to the king. Very few people make it through. He says most people are bachutz, like the Gemara says, Ben bachutz. Over there, that Gemara says that after that after they went to Pardes, 
the Gemara says the Ben Zion, there's different versions of it in the, in the Gemara Hagiga, Bereshit Rabbah, the Sefer, there's, there's all different iterations at the same point. The Yeshua comes and he sees Ben Zion, he's like not acting normal. He says, Ben Zion, what are you, what's up? Get up, come on, let's go. And, and Ben Zion starts talking about the waters and the pain and whatever, it doesn't make any difference to what he specifically said, but he's not making any sense. He's speaking Mishka Bible. And the Yeshua says, Ben Zion, and then he died. You know, shortly after, but it was clearly incoherent. Whatever he had seen or done or thought was no longer able to, to live with the rest of us. The Ramam says that all of this stuff of the science and the mathematics you have to know that in order to love Hashem, in order to fear Hashem, in order to appreciate His oneness, in order to appreciate Hashem Himself, to be mekayim, the knowledge of that is all this stuff is part of. And then he says something very interesting. This is an I say, you know, when the Ram says Vani Aimer, not that often he says that in Mishnah, but he says Vani Aimer, or he says Yerali, right? You always don't perk your ears up, right? Because the Rabbah, right? Right? The whole idea of the Mishnah is he doesn't use citations from anybody, right? Sometimes the Ram Mishnah says the Ga'inim decided, but most times it's coming with no source. There's a whole long story about for now, but when he decided he was going to do sources, he had wanted that people complained about it. But the point is, is that the Rambam sometimes gives a source. The source is himself. So those are the times you perk your ears up. You're like, oh, what's he saying? This is going to be a good one, right? So he says, you know all the stuff that I've just been telling you? You shouldn't be metal in paradise. You shouldn't go into strolling. You couldn't go, you shouldn't be going for the spazir. In the Pardes, which is the deepest parts of the world, until when? Until in the smaller crest of a Basar Balakam. What's Basar Balakam? So he says that the 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 Basar Balakam is is beer mutter to know all what's mutter, what's asr, all the mitzvahs. Meaning, this is the Torah. He says that this is what the Gemara meant when it says that the Havayas of Abay and Rav are small things. The Meisamar covers a big thing. You have to first know Torah, then you have to have That's what he says. So there's a couple of points I want to make. One, what is, what's he saying exactly? He says, first you do Abayarav, first you do Shas, and then you have to One second. Didn't he just open up his Mishnah Torah by talking about Pardes, four chapters dedicated just to this? Why didn't he put it at the end of Mishnah Torah? He's the first put all the halachas that he just said are really the things that he needs first. What's he doing? Why is he starting out by talking about Pardes? If he just said that Pardes is at the end. So I think the answer to that is clearly there's a minimum of Pardes that one has to know before you can get into anything. You have to have a minimum. You have to have an understanding. There's a world outside. This all world was created by God. You're not aware that there's a world? If you're living in a cave and you never met another person, you don't know there's a tree, you don't see the universe, you're not going to appreciate anything. You have no awareness of anything. You have no vocabulary. You have no, you have no ability to imagine. You have no imagination of anything. In order to be able to get close to that God's broker, you have to have a Kreach HaDim and you have to have an imagination. You have to have something that spurs you on, that turns you on to think about a world. So you have to walk outside. That's number one. This is the most basic, I think, what he's trying to say in terms of the beginning, why you need that as a foundation, the basic part that you need. But to become Einstein, 
to become a genius in science, a genius in mathematics. Okay, that you don't have to do. First, you have to know the basics of Judaism. You have to be able to keep to a certain modicum of living. You have to keep to a certain level and approach to what's usher and mutter. You can't just be a hedonist. You can't be like an Aristotle eating your rabbit. That is not that is not okay. In order to be able to get to the places, he's going to point out, you have to live in order to get close to God as a, not as a, um, uh, they, 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 a hermit. You know, these people that they would live outside of everybody else, right? Many Christian denominations, they very much advocated the way to get close to Hashem is to, always, or not just in the Christian, also in the Eastern, you know, uh, religion. Now you go out, you meditate, right? And many of these uh, um, Buddhists and the like, you go and you go to a place where you're just alone, you solitude, you practice this bitterness all the time. But not as bitterness for like, you know, a day. No, it's bitterness for a lifetime. That's not the terrorist approach, right? The terrorist anti that approach. This bitterness is certainly 100% valid for a time. But you have to get married. You have to have a family. You have to deal with this world. It's in this world. And this, by the way, is the, is the response against the violence. In this world, it's within this supernal, this supernal temporal body that somehow we get close. It doesn't seem supernal, it seems temporal, but it's within the four corners of our bodies that we somehow are doing an avayda begashmi to get close to God's world. Again, not for right now. But the Ramam says, and he's very, very clear, that the only way that you should be able to get to the ultimate levels of pardes is after you have already studied some significant amount of Torah. So, and by the way, he says, the Rabbim says, I put it over there as well, that the, somebody's mistaken to kuvying with, with non-Jews. He's not kosher. Why is he not kosher? He's not kosher because he's not involved in Yishuv HaElov. He's not involved in anything that adds to the universe. You have to add to the universe to, to you know, if it, Huh? That's what he says over there. Yeah. He, I don't know if he could contemplate that Jews are being uh, Latino. Um, um, all right. So now I want to get to really the, um, the heart of the matter. The Ramam says later on, he said that there is no paradigm. This is where he starts to talk about prophecy. And he says the following. He says, you want to become a prophet? Basically, it's open to anybody. But prophecy doesn't work the way it is commonly thought by other Rishonim, which is, you know, Hagam Shalbanavim, like any random, you know, to become a prophet. If Hashem wants to be a prophet, he'll prophesy. The Ramam prophecy is Hogwarts. You know, it's, you go to school for it. You have to be studying it many years. That's why you find the B'nai Nevi'im in, in Tanakh. There are people who would study to become prophets. You didn't just like get it. You have to learn it. You have to go to school. So the Ramam tells you what is required in order to become a prophet. What's required in order to become a prophet is the following. You have to be a genius in wisdom and you have to be very much a gibar when it comes to midas. In your midas, you have to be a gibar. This is where the Abai and Rava comes in because they tell you what's usher and what's mutter they give you the ability to define a middle road in life to be able to use the body in a way that's kosher. Because otherwise, you're either a hedonist or you're waving back and forth depending on where your mood is. 
but following the Shokhanar, following the path of the Aser and Mutter and Chazal, that gives you a path for life to be able to dwell the body and use it and utilize it in a way that gets you closer. That's the genius of Judaism, is that we have a halacha that's able to take the body and use it correctly. You become the master over your Yetzer and not your Yetzer be the master over you. And he continues. And he says, This person is going to come into paradise. These are going to understand these deep things that we've already talked about before. And it's going to be very different than the rest of the humans that are walking around all ingemished with everything that, you know, involving the current, uh, um, you know, cultural issues, whatever the shows and the, and, the, and the TV and all that stuff. That's what everybody else is wasting their time, but not this person. You want to become a prophet? Getting involved with all the day-to-day that the white polloi are interested in is not the way to go. You have to be beyond that. And he said, You can't be involved and engaged in any of the stupidity that everybody else wastes their time about. Rather, you're going to be engaged all day in spiritual speculation, not in this, anything to do with the with the with with this waste of time things. And you're going to be engaged in trying to understand the, the wisdom of Hakadosh Baruch Hu. from the first image until the very earth. And if you get to that place. You're able to appreciate the essence of Baruch Barku in the sense of creating this universe and the genius that's infused in all of it. You hit the paradise that I've mentioned about in the Torah in the beginning four chapters. You understand the physics and metaphysics of the world, then you're going to immediately become a prophet. So you have to do two things. One, he doesn't mention here, by the way, what did we not quote? He didn't mention anything about Torah here, correct? We just talked here about Pardes, which was not Tyra. But remember what the Ramam said in Paragdalit. He said, in order to get to Pardes, you first should be studying Abai and Rava. So obviously, in order to become a Navi, you have to have all the Abai and Rava. Then you study all the Pardes. And if you're a person that is Shalom that is Gaver al Yitzray, and you have engaged in speculation, you understand all the mathematics and the sciences that are engaged and involved in every little being in this world, you appreciate the genius, you appreciate that it all comes from Akadosh Baruch you don't see anything as being divorced from him, you appreciate in every little thing, oh, this is Akadosh Baruch that's gravity from Akadosh Baruch this is weight, you know, uh, um, this is uh, um, uh, gravitational pull, this is the body's biological reaction, this is quantum physics, all this is coming from him. That's a person who, if he's also living a very holy spiritual life, in the sense that he's not a wild hedonist, such a person will become another. It's easier said than done. But 
it's all there. It's not. In other words, from the Ramam's perspective, the Kaddish Baruch Hu is He's broadcasting all the time. There's always a broadcast. The Kaddish Baruch Hu is broadcasting. It's us who have the inability to hear it. Since the time of Baishin, there's no ability for us to get to that level. But we can strive for it. But again, the, what I'm pointing out in relation to the secular studies aspect of it is, it's not because, oh, you became the greatest Torah scholar. It, you have to have the basis of Torah at the beginning, of course, but that's not enough. Just knowing all of Torah is not enough. You also, of course, have to be a very pure and holy person in terms of the way you deal with your day-to-day. You can't be a materialist. You can't be a hedonist. Okay. But even that's not enough. You also have to have a knowledge of the world outside in order to be able to appreciate a Baruch in a prophetic level. And that, if you just decide, I'm going to be a person who knows Kula, and I'm going to be a person who doesn't do anything in a material hedonistic way, great. You'd be Godly Israel. But you're not a prophet. You can't get to the level of Nebuah with that alone. To become a prophet, you have to appreciate the world that God has created. And the Rambam says at the, uh, in Hilchus Tshuva, at the end, at the very end of Hilchus Tshuva, he says that the Abba Vakarish Barku is in every person. This is almost the right time, right? The Abba Vakarish Barku is in every single person to some degree. Everybody's different in how much they love Akarish Baruch Love Alpiya, Dei Alpiya Ava. Because you want to know who loves Hashem more? It's who knows Him more. In other words, for the Rambam, loving Akarish Baruch is part and parcel of knowing Him, knowing His creation. The more you know, the more you know about the world, the more you're going to come to love Him. If you only know a little infinitesimal bit, if you live in a cave, if you're a benighted person that doesn't know anything about the world at large, as far as you're concerned, the whole world is your Dalaramas and there's nothing else. And your Abba Vakarish Baruch is, is self-love just for yourself. But if the more you know about others, just forget even the science, just knowing other people, just recognizing that there's so much diversity that in and of itself, remembering that you're not longer in a cave, that each and every person has their story and their peckle, that alone is a way to become closer to Kaddish Baruch Hu. And then it says, And therefore a person needs to make himself like one in order to understand and appreciate all the Chachmas and all the Tfunas, all the deep wisdoms in the world that teach him about his creator. Not everybody could open up an Einsteinian book of physics and sit here and study the first rule and the second rule of relativity and spending all the time on trying to figure out the one theory that unifies quantum mechanics. Nobody has to sit here on understanding magnetism. That's not, what, that's not what's being asked of us. Each person, whatever your ability is, if your ability is that you can read a brief history in time, you know, by, uh, by Stephen Hawking, 
which is a popular science book, well, nothing wrong. Not everybody has to sit up reading biology books. No, I'm saying that this is not as talking about other people here per se, but that's part, this is the world, they're getting to know the world. Yeah, no. Get, Today, getting to know people is also a science, right? Psychology and social work and psychiatry. There's so many ways to get to know people. So you can either get to know people like personally, you can get to know people through reading books, but that's of course a science as well. But the idea that, that, that I wanna put it right from this point is, that the Ava is intimately connected to the Deya. If you don't know, right, that's why the Torah always talks about an intimate level with a spouse and a relationship is what? It's always talking about it as knowledge, right? This is not for now, but this is what it means, Ace Hadas and stuff like that. The whole idea of the Torah is that love and knowledge, you're not going to get to love without knowledge. You can't love somebody if you don't know them. The deepest level of knowledge is an expression of love, vice versa. You cannot come to the other without, without the knowledge. The Ramam is saying that very, very clear here. And the knowledge, the, he's finishing off his, his last lines of Hilkos Shuvah, the way he's closing out the, the book, right? The way he's closing the Sefer Amata is what? What's the knowledge that you have to be knowing? The things that will inform you about God. The things that will inform you about him. So again, for those who are not sure, if within the Mishnah Torah, the Ramam is talking about other wisdom, secular discipline, I'm trying to prove the point that it's not a, it's like, you know, when you hit a home run, sometimes that they're like, everybody's like sitting, like, is it going to go out? And sometimes there's a no doubt about it. This one's gone. Everyone knows. There's no doubt about it. There's not like, uh, to fetch the Rambam a little bit, you know, to make him like, no, there's no tick fetching here. I'll give you a few more examples to bring home the point and then we'll conclude. In the Rambam and Kiddush HaKadosh, the Rambam and Kiddush HaKadosh talks, I think I mentioned many weeks ago, right? the Rambam and Kiddush HaKadosh is an unreal genius, right? It takes basically everything. The Seder Ibra puts it down for us into Hebrew. Very few people understand it. If you look, the nice the Kalim on the Rambam, they're not there. They all disappear. There's just the Mefarish. If you try to spend your time on it, good luck to you. The Rivet, the Rivet, right? The greatest commentator on the Rambam, he writes that this Mechaber, he's misboer. He's so proud of himself that he knows this wisdom. I don't, I don't know anything about this stuff. He's so proud of himself. Okay. It is unique work. Okay. What is this Kiddush HaKadosh based upon? The Rambam tells you. He says, look, it's all based upon the Greeks. Remember, right? Kiddush HaKadosh is the first thing in the Torah. Without it, we don't stand a chance. What is the Rambam saying, Kiddush HaKadosh? Right? He said, we don't have a calendar, we have no Judaism. 
right? This is one of the riots that I use in my Zionist, uh, you know, Israel classes, is that the Hamam says that if there aren't Jews in Eretz Israel, then the calendar is no longer works, no longer operative. In order for our calendar to work, there have to be Jews in Eretz Israel. If there's no community of Jews in Eretz Israel, our calendar goes kaput. Doesn't work. So, by definition, the Rambam needs a settlement of Jews and ongoing settlements. He said, okay, he only needs 10 bedraggled Jews, you know. No, I'm saying the calendar dirt that we have today is based upon, the, is only operative today because there are 10 Jews living in the land of Israel. He doesn't say 10. I'm saying there needs to have a settlement of Jews. I'm saying those could say, yeah, but there could be 10 bedraggled Jews waiting to die. You know, like in the olden days, they would come to Israel to bear before you know, the Yom Moisai in order to be have Kaver and Eretz Israel. That that's what we're talking about, maybe. But he doesn't say the amount of Jews. But he says there has to be sound of Jews in Eretz Israel, or the calendar that we have from Hill Azai is no longer operative. What Kiddush Hakadosh is doing is showing you how they made the calendar. It's explaining to you the, how the calendar works. This is a different topic, but yeah. But that, that's 100%. Uh, that's not, again, I know that about it. Ramah is very clear about that point. But whether or not it could be used as a Zionist argument, that's also not for right now. Um, all right. So here, the Ramah says the following. He says, look, the, the rabbis and the Greeks, they debated a lot of different things. And he says, things I got, I got a lot from the Greeks. He's like, but don't let it bother you. He says, a lot of this wisdom has been lost over time. The Rambam, and he repeats it in the Maranavukim, does not say that the Jews didn't retain this wisdom, didn't have this wisdom, and didn't contain the wisdom. What he says is they didn't retain the wisdom. He says we once had it, but under the vicissitudes of time, under the various different tumultuous exiles, we lost it. So in order to get it back, I have to study the Greeks. But don't think we didn't have it. So the, correct. By definition, not Greek wisdom. By definition, all wisdom is godly wisdom. And who is the translator of that wisdom into us? So sometimes it's the Greeks who translated it. Sometimes it's the Americans who translated it. Sometimes, you know, the British. Every generation has somebody looking into the world and they're translating it. Much, of, by the way, I mean, I think 100%, I don't think it's even a question. 100% of the Greek wisdom that the Ramam got from the Greeks, how did he get it? It was mediated by the Arabs. There was no Greek. The Rambam didn't speak Greek. He had no access to Greek wisdom directly. He got it through the Muslims. It is true that the Rambam's life was terrible, suffering for many years. He had to run away from Spain. He always called himself a Ishisfardi. He called himself a, a, a man of Spain. That's where he came from. And he goes to North Africa, to Israel, eventually settles in Egypt. But that was because of these fanatic Almohads, these crazy Muslims that <coughs> were coming from Morocco, these Berbers, they were nuts. And they, and, they, and they made life miserable for everybody who wasn't you know, in part of their sect. But the earlier Muslims who ran Spain and those areas of the you know, Spanish peninsula, they were very wise. There were many universities for the Muslims that they took the Greek wisdom and they put it into Arabic. That's how the Ramam got it. So he talks about it as Greek wisdom. But it's Greek wisdom that's coming from the Arabs. It's coming from Muslims. So the Rambam says that <clears throat> this is how he concludes. He says, I've now given you 
is that the end of Kiddush Hashem is that I'm not giving you all this wisdom about how the how the calendar all works. You don't have to read any of the books. Remember how we said Rama Sada Bishnah Tara? And he said, You don't have to read any of the books except for the Tara and my book, and you're good. This is how he says, Kiddush HaKadosh. You don't have to worry about any science books. I've taken everything, I've put it here. And as I mentioned, he's very clear that the science was not Greek science, the science was Jewish science. But the Ramam says that the Jewish science was faulty in his day. It got lost in the vicissitudes of time. We already know this from the Gemara. The Gemara Pesachim tells us is between Rabbi and the Greeks about where the, where the sun goes at night. It's a very famous thing. It became very famous today. Again, it's been famous for hundreds of years. Ever since Copernicus came up with his revolution, it's become famous. The Maral is already talking about it and really on down. Where does the sun What's the sun's path at night? So the Gemara says that during the day, obviously the sun is beneath the Reikia, and the Chachnum Asylum say that at the, at the nighttime, it goes underneath the ground. And the, the, the Jews said that it went above the Reikia. So the Rebbe says that, near the, that the, their words are better than ours. Why? Because if you go to the Mayanas, if you go to the springs at night, they're warm. So clearly the sun is going under the earth. We all know today that this is not, uh, there's not a leg of this to stand on. Again, I'm not interested in getting into right now the morale and all of his ways of attempting to make, make it make sense. That's not my point here. My point here was that the secular wisdom that the Jews had was not necessarily true. And that's okay. It's not a problem because as the Ramah points out, much of it was lost. Much of it was attempted to be reconstituted by their own um, knowledge of what they saw around the world, but it's not necessarily rigorous. It certainly has no tradition. And if it's not correct, it's not correct. Then move on. That's why we don't have to deal with any of the refuers in the Gemara. We don't have to worry about any of that stuff. But those who say, well, the world has changed. Point the Ram, you don't have to say that. You just simply say, there's no tradition on this stuff. The wisdom of Solomon has long been lost. We try to figure it out by making up our own refuas based upon our own observation. It doesn't always work. We move on. We go see different medical doctors today than people who are, you know, if somebody has a, puts out a shingle that he's doing the, uh, the wisdom of the Gemara science, you know, this, the medicine, this is a practitioner of uh, holistic medicine. He practices the medicinal treatments of the shocks. You don't go to see such a doctor. It's a lav in the Torah. Rapper, you rapper, you have a mitzvah to go to a normal doctor. But the quoting of the Gemara, yeah. According to the Ram, you don't even worry about it. It's not like, this is not a tradition from Sinai. It's nothing to be worried about. What's the point of all this? is that at the end of the day, it's not that the Ramam thought of himself as a bidi evid. It's not that he was in any way having any self-doubt about the secular wisdom. Like, I have a taiva, I know physics, so I'm going to steal moments because it's my Yetzirah. No. It's an ideal. For the Rambam, studying science is an ideal because we have a mitzvah we have a mitzvah we have a mitzvah we have a mitzvah to be fearing we have a mitzvah to be fearing we have these mitzvahs all the time. And how do you feel that? 
You feel that? By looking outside, by looking at every blade of grass and recognizing that that's here because he wills it to be here. The same way that the billions of trillions of planets and galaxies and stars are out there, because he wills those two. And every person and every molecule and every little thing is all from him. Miyad, who near to Macharif, you're blown away by the genius, by the just vast massiveness of such a power, and you're terrified. And at the same time, you love him and you want to get to know him more. And you are misave. You are mamish feeling thirsty. It's some You want to get to know him. So we'll conclude this section on the Rambam by saying effectively that for the Rambam, secular wisdom is showing that a bidyevet is a lechatil of lechatilis. Have a good day. Uh, <laughs>